Exploring the Word is brought to you by Reclaiming America for Christ and the Fairview Baptist Church in Edmond, Oklahoma. What exactly is faith? Oftentimes we kind of liken it to a feeling or to an emotion or perhaps just hoping for something really hard. That's not what faith is. This is Pastor Paul Blair. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Exploring the Word. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 10. We'll be looking at verse 38 as we are going to be continuing this short series that the Apostle Paul preached on Habakkuk 2.4. We have looked at the verse, the just shall live by faith from the perspective of justification. We've looked at it from living by faith. And today we're going to begin a short message focusing on the faith aspect itself. The just shall live by faith. We welcome you to the radio ministry of Fairview Baptist Church in Edmond. We invite you to join with us for today's Exploring the Word. Here's Pastor Paul Blair. Hebrews chapter 10, let's begin in verse 37. For yet a little while, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 37, we'll read down through verse 6 of chapter 11. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. For we are not of them who draw back into perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good report, or pleased God. Through faith we understand it's been confirmed that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts and by it he being dead yet speaketh. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Of course, Habakkuk was an interesting book of prophecy in that it doesn't record the messages of the prophet as he's speaking to the people, but it records the conversation between the prophet with God and his objection to what God's plans for Israel were. Now, there was no doubt by this point in time that Israel was worthy of judgment. However, Habakkuk objected in that, in his opinion, God was going to allow a more corrupt people to bring judgment upon the nation of Israel. And God didn't deny that they were a more corrupt people in many ways. And God did affirm that the ways of the wicked would not stand. But then God emphasized in the B part of chapter 2, verse 4 of Habakkuk, the just shall live by his faith. Now, among the 14 books that Paul had authored, he preached three different messages from this one power-packed half verse alone. First of all, in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, he begins a sermon on justification, and he emphasized the just shall live by faith. Then in Galatians, trying to align the proper relationship between works 
and that we don't do works in order to be saved, but that we do work because we are saved. Paul emphasized this area of life called sanctification, and he emphasizes the living part. The just shall live by faith. And then here in our text this morning, Hebrews 10.38, just before we launch into this great chapter 11, the Faith Hall of Fame, Paul emphasizes that the just shall live by faith. Ladies and gentlemen, words have meanings. And unfortunately, some definitions seem to gradually change over time so that the meaning changes also. In my lifetime, the meaning of the word gay has changed. I remember being a child and singing Christmas carols that had the word gay in it. It just meant you were happy. Hey, Christmas is coming. Now gay means something completely different. You know, there was a time that blue was actually a color. Now it's become an emotion. Well, one such word that directly affects Christianity is the word faith. Now, folks, we've allowed the scientific community through the years to incorrectly shape the argument of what is truth as to be held in debate between the facts of science versus the blind faith of religion. Now, that's how they have shaped the argument incorrectly, so please pay special attention this morning. In fact, if you notice from this modern excerpt, a modern excerpt from Webster's Dictionary from online, section 2B in the definition of faith, it says this, a firm belief in something for which there is no proof complete trust. Well, is that really what faith is? No, not at all. In fact, we practice faith every day. You know, every time you drive across a bridge, you are putting your faith in that bridge. You are trusting in the bridge to hold you up. Now, that is not blind faith. You are making a educated decision based upon the evidence of the science of engineering and the fact that you've seen thousands of cars drive across that bridge already in your lifetime. You take the evidence and based upon the evidence, you choose to put your faith in that bridge that it can in fact hold you up. Every time you accelerate through a green light, you are trusting by faith that those in the cross traffic are going to stop at the red light. Now what's that based upon? Well, we know that the law states that when there's a red light, you're supposed to stop. When there's a green light, it's legal for you to go. And by experience, we have seen countless times where it works just that way. Now, we have all seen a car accident. We understand the human nature of here. But in fact, we know what the rules are, and we know how it functions. And typically, if you're sitting there at a stoplight and the light turned green, you accelerate. That is an act of faith. How many of you all work somewhere? How many of you all receive paychecks? How many of you all demand that you're paid in cash? How many of you demand, actually even better, that you're paid in gold bullion? Well, that would be no faith right there. Say, I don't believe in, the, I don't, don't believe in my employer, but I don't even believe in the government anymore. But, okay, if you receive a paycheck, that is, in fact, an act of faith. You're receiving a little piece of paper that is actually worthless, but it's a promise to pay from your employer to you and your decision is based upon the evidence that this is a trustworthy man and that his word is good and based upon the fact that for the last x number of years you have received paychecks and you've actually received money in your bank so based upon the evidence that is an act of faith how many of you have ever used an elevator how many of you check the cables first every time you get on an elevator 
No, every time you get on an elevator is an act of faith based upon the design of the elevator, again, the science of engineering, and your confidence that they are competent and that that elevator is going to function. You literally put your life on the line. You get on that elevator, the cable's secure. That is, in fact, faith. We do not have blind faith. Our faith is based upon previous experience and evidence. Folks, that kind of faith is not blind at all. It's based on a decision that you must make based upon the evidence that's been presented to you. Now consider what Noah Webster had defined in the original Webster's Dictionary, as I put on the screen. And notice also how many times the words truth, evidence, and testimony are used in the definition. Okay, faith is based upon evidence. Say that with me. Faith is based upon evidence. Say it again. Faith is based upon evidence. When you wake up tonight in a start out of that dream you're having, I want it to be, well, faith is based on evidence. If you remember nothing else today, repeat after me. Faith is based on evidence. Now, in fact, Paul quotes in our text, Hebrews 10, 38, and two verses later, Paul defines the word faith. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, last week we had Mark Christian. By the way, in case you had wanted to ask, his birth name was Muhammad Abdullah, Muhammad the slave of God. When he became a Christian, he changed his name to Mark Christian because the preacher that had the most influence in his early days of being a Christian was a pastor by the name of Mark. So he adopted that name and then because he was proud to be a Christian, he adopted Christian. So anyway, of course, Mark was raised a devout Muslim. In his late teens and early 20s, Mark began to have questions about the Quran. When he asked questions to his spiritual leaders, he was told, don't ask questions. Well, why not? We're not supposed to. You just take it for what it says. Don't question it. Don't examine it. You know, the Jews began questioning the Word of God, and God's going to make apes and pigs out of them. That was literally the response that he got. Folks, that is not the God of the Bible. We have a God that can stand inspection. God does not expect us, or does he demand blind faith. Our faith is built upon two pillars, as it states here in Hebrews 11.1. First, faith has substance. That word substance is hypostasis in the Greek. It literally means something tangible. It means an actual substructure, a real foundation. In other words, we have evidence that's based upon something tangible, or I would say a scientific perspective. We don't have blind faith. We have scientific evidence that will substantiate God's truth claims. Now, it also goes on to say, faith is the evidence of things not seen. Now, that word evidence is the word elekos, and it's a legal term that means evidence that is sufficient to demand a conviction. It means proof, as in an oral testimony that would be given in a court of law. Again, this is not scientific evidence, but it is legal evidence that would be legitimately allowed in a courtroom. And ladies and gentlemen, I want to point out here before we proceed in the concluding part of this message, that God has always proved himself overwhelmingly to man with the use of substance and evidence. Consider in the book of Exodus as God was preparing to lead the people of Israel out of captivity. In Egypt, God demonstrated visually his power with nine successive plagues that were poured out on Egypt and on Egypt alone. It was amazing. All of these visual plagues, the Nile River turned into blood. 
Was that something that was substantial? Was that something tangible that you could measure? Absolutely. Flies, locusts, hail that fell from heaven yet burned when it hit the ground. Is that something tangible that could be observed? Absolutely. And it was also interesting that it only happened in Egypt, but not in the land of Goshen. So when it got down to plague 10, where God said, listen, I'm going to send a death angel in. This time it's going to cover all, including the land of Goshen. But there is a means of escape. If you'll trust my word and believe in what I'm going to tell you, and you take a lamb in the first year, male without spot or blemish, and you slit that lamb's throat, you take the blood and put it on the doorposts and on the headpiece and on the ground, then that death angel will pass over your door. Was it blind faith that compelled the Jews to trust God? No. They had ample evidence, and in obedience they did, in fact, trust God. All right, let's look at another example. At the Red Sea. Here they were, backs against the wall, hemmed in by the wilderness, and you have the Egyptians here. Looks like a bad day, doesn't it? All of a sudden, the pillar of fire interceded between the Jews and the Egyptians. Now, if you're a Jew, you're saying things are looking up. But is this blind faith at this point in time? No, it's observable. They could see the hand of God working. And then Moses lifted up the rod and the Red Sea divided. Again, they could see the hand of God working. Then they, in faith, based upon what they could... Folks, are, are you listening? This is not blind faith. I'm saying, hey, wow, big fire, wow, seas open. I'm going through. My faith in God is based upon something tangible, is it not? They get to the other side, the Egyptians attempt to follow, and of course you know the story, the sea swallowed them up. Consider this, when they were at Sinai, just three months later, God said, hey, Moses, I'm going to bring you up here, but I'm not going to bring you up here alone and just whisper in your ear. Notice what God did. God descended in a thick cloud with lightning and thunder and a heavenly shofar, and he spoke so that, notice what the Bible says, we always look past this, all could hear him and know that what was revealed to Moses was true, and thus God could be trusted. Look at this right here. And the Lord said unto Moses, Lo, I come unto thee in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with thee, and believe thee forever. And Moses told the words of the people unto the Lord. Does this sound like God fears inspection? Does this sound like God demands blind faith? No. God provides overwhelmingly abundant evidence that we can put our faith and trust in Him. Consider when God had promised to provide the sustenance for the Jews as they were crossing the wilderness. Remember, they're, hey, boy, we don't have enough food to eat. Here we are. God's brought us out here, and he's just going to leave us for dead. God said, you bunch of nitwits. Said, I'm going to provide something for you on a daily basis. Here's the deal. You go out every day, and you pick up the manna. Just pick up enough for that day because you're going to trust me. I'm going to provide for you. You're going to walk in faith. Trust me, and I'm going to provide your, your food for you day by day. All right? Just take an omer per person, I'm going to feed you today, and then I'm going to feed you tomorrow. Don't take enough for two days, because it won't keep. And what they do, the first thing, like a bunch of humans, they were out there hoarding up a whole bunch of it. God said, what did I tell you? And of course, everything that they'd kept for the second day, spoiled. Didn't have a long shelf life, did it? 
But then on the sixth day, they were told, by faith, go out and get a double portion because I want you to rest on the Sabbath. And that will sustain you through the Sabbath day. And it did. But then notice what God instructed them to do in chapter 16, verse 32. And Moses said, this is the thing which the Lord commandeth. Fill an omer of it to be kept for your generations that they may see the bread wherewith I have fed you in the wilderness when I brought you forth from the land of Egypt. And Moses said unto Aaron, take a pot and put an omer, a day's meal, about five pints or so, full of manna therein and lay it up before the Lord God to be kept for your generations. And the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the ark of the, what, notice what the ark of the covenant's called, before the ark of God's testimony. What was God doing? I want you to store up some of this manna so that future generations can see it for themselves and trust that I am, in fact, trustworthy. Now, folks, it doesn't say specifically here, but I have to imagine that that manna never rotted. If you were there 30 years later and you said, Hey, I want proof that this God really exists. And somebody brought out a bowl of rotted, rancid bread. What proof would that be? None. But if they brought out something and you could sit there and look at it for a couple of days. And mind you, there was no refrigerator. You couldn't go put it in the Amana. And it doesn't last but 24 hours. We had already seen that. If it kept to the second day, it's spoiled. So if they could observe this for several days, they'd go, well, I'll swan. They were southern Jews. I'll swan. God is trustworthy. But notice, God's not expecting blind faith. God says, try me. Yeah, I can prove myself. I can man up. Notice also in this same situation what happened with Aaron's rod that budded. You know, there was a period of time shortly after this that all the other families were jealous that Aaron was serving in the priesthood and the Levites had such a special place of privilege. Well, why are they? He's different than the rest of us. We should be able to do the same work. And God instructed Moses, here, here's how we'll reestablish what my will is. Take a rod from each of the 12 families. A rod is a, a walking stick. It is a stick of defense. It also serves as a scepter of leadership. Take a rod from each of the 12 families and write the name on the rod. So they had the tribe of Judah written on one, the tribe of Benjamin written on one. And for, for Levi's tribe, write the name Aaron, since that's who I've chosen, God said, to represent me in the temple or in the tabernacle. Now bring those 12 dead sticks into the tabernacle overnight. And then I'll reveal who I'm selecting the next day for all to see. You know the story, they did that and the next day they came out and number 17 says this and it came to pass that on the morrow Moses went into the tabernacle of witness, tabernacle, get that, of witness as in testimony and beheld the rod of Aaron for the house of Levi was budded and brought forth buds and bloomed blossoms and yielded almonds and Moses brought out all the rods from before the Lord unto the children of Israel and they looked and took every man his rod. And the Lord said unto Moses, Bring Aaron's rod again before the testimony to be kept for a token against the rebels. Thou shalt quite take away the murmurings from before me. So this dead stick produced blossoms and produced almonds overnight. Is that a miracle? Yep, I'd say so. But it also said, take the stick back in there and keep it there so you can bring it out any time there's a question. For future generations. 
Now, folks, again, it doesn't say specifically, but I think it's reasonable to conclude that that stick kept producing almonds. What good would a dead stick do in 20 years? Here, let me bring out proof. Here, here God shows it, that Aaron's the man. What's well, a dead stick? What's so special about that? I believe that that thing kept producing almonds over the future years. Here's the point. God doesn't expect blind faith. God gives evidence that demands a verdict from us. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. In John 5, we see the account of Jesus just north of the temple at the pools of Bethesda during one of the feast days. There he finds an impotent man, a man who couldn't walk, and he healed him, and he healed him on the Sabbath day, And amazingly, the Pharisees didn't rejoice in this great miracle. They condemned Jesus as being a sinner because he told the man to to roll up his bed mat and carry it on the Sabbath. Now, in response, Jesus declared his deity. He declared his oneness with God. And he claimed that everlasting life came from believing in him. But he didn't just stop there. He didn't say, just take my word for it. He said, consider the evidence as if he was a prosecuting attorney in a court of law. And Jesus pointed out four witnesses to testify on his behalf. The first testimony was the scriptures. He says, hey, you take a look at the scriptures. They talk about me. And they did. Think about it. We've talked about this on countless occasions. And by the way, you should know all of these things like the back of your hand. You know, when I was visiting with this young Muslim boy a week ago last Sunday night with Mark Christian as we were dialoguing and asking questions of of each other you know what his question was of me he said but Paul there's no place in the Bible where Jesus claimed to be God I said oh yes and I was able to share with him multiple accounts not where others said hey he is God but where Jesus himself claimed to be God can you do that you must If you're going to be adequately equipped to go out and engage the culture in which we live. Folks, that's the point. Preaching is not just here to kill 40 minutes of Sunday morning. This is classroom time. This is teaching time. This is not your serving the Lord. This is your class. This is study. This is where you educate here. This is the huddle. Where we call the play. Out there is where we go serve the Lord. So be taking notes. You don't even have to buy a copy of these discs to to listen to the sermon again. They're free online. Go through and take notes later and make sure you learn these things. You know what my hope is? My hope is is that it gets to the point, and I've been here for 15 years. I hope if I'm here another 15 years and the Lord hadn't taken me to heaven before that point in time, that you all know these things so well that whenever I bring them up, my congregation can almost recite them with me. That's what I want. We'll say, isn't that repetitive? Yes. By intent. You know, I love it when Brother Lash gives me grief about the mountain peaks of prophecy. That means that I repeated it enough times where he's got it down. That's perfect. I want you all to have this stuff down so that you can use it once you're out there on the firing line. But Jesus said, hey, look, the scriptures speak of me. Genesis 3.15 prophesies this special birth, this virgin birth, the seed of the woman. 
Genesis 12, we see that this promised Messiah would be from Abraham. You go further, you find it's from Isaac. You go further, you find it's from Jacob. You go further, you find it's from the tribe of Judah. You go further, you find that he's going to be of the seed of David. You go further and you find he's going to be born in Bethlehem. You go further and you find he's going to come out of Egypt. You go further and you find out that he's going to be from Galilee. You go further and you see that there's going to be a forerunner that announces his appearing. All of these things happened. Now, if you're a student of the Scriptures, as the Jews were, the response should be, hey, I wonder if this could be the guy. Jesus said, you look at the Bible. I'm the guy. The second thing he said was this. He said, consider John the Baptist. John the Baptist was that prophesied forerunner to the Messiah, prophesied in Malachi 3. John the Baptist was accepted as a prophet of God by the people. Well, what was John's testimony? We know that as he was baptizing at Bethabara beyond Jordan, the first time Jesus made his public appearance, John said, that's him. There he is. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your attention off of me and look right there. That is the Lamb of God, which come to take away the sin of the world. What are you going to say, Jews? Was John lying? Hey, you call him a prophet of God. What did he say about me? Okay, what's the third piece of evidence? The Heavenly Father. At Jesus' baptism, the Spirit of God descended like a dove, and a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Folks, that should have convinced any naysayers at that point in time. And by the way, I was noticing as I was reading through yesterday, I happened to be in John 12, there were multiple occasions where God the Father spoke from heaven. Consider this, just days, this is, I didn't have time to put this on a slide, but I, I want to throw this at you. Not literally, verbally. John 12, 27. This was just literally within 48 hours of the crucifixion. And here's Jesus. He says this, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, but for this cause I came into the world. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And the people, therefore, that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said an angel spoke to him. But Jesus said, this voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Hey, is there any doubt who I am? The voice of God the Father rings out. That's a pretty strong witness. And then finally, his miracles. John 5, 36, the same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. We talked about that in recent weeks. There are 37 different miracles recorded in the Bible. And we know that there are many others which he actually performed in John 20. It said this, and many other works were done that were not written in the book. But these are recorded that you may know that he was the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing you might have life in his name. How many did he do? Don't know. But we're not even told the the significance of these we know that there are many instances that were for instance three days before the crucifixion it said that jesus chased everybody out of the temple courtyard and then sat there in the court of the gentiles and healed great multitudes how many is a great multitude i don't know it could have been five thousand could have been ten thousand could be twenty five thousand as he healed everyone that came to him in fulfillment to what the prophecies have said Isaiah 35, Malachi 4, all these that the Messiah would bring healing. 
This is Pastor Paul Blair, and we thank you for joining us for today's edition of Exploring the Word. We look forward to being with you next time as we continue today's message. Until then, God bless you. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Fairview Baptist Church in Edmond. We hope that today's journey in God's Word has been a blessing to you. You can find more sermons and resources at our church's website, www.fairviewbaptistedmond.org or call 405-348-1745. Join us again each weekday for Exploring the Word from Fairview Baptist Church in Edmond.